This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampke Pagan. Now, joining me on the show today is author Tom Vanderbilt. He wrote the book, You May Also Like, Taste in an Age of Endless Choice. And he's here today to talk to me about why we like the things we do. To have good taste is possibly one of the highest compliments you could give someone. Uh, it's this... It's you passing judgment on someone's sense of discernment and I think that's yeah that's a pretty cool compliment but where do you suppose that came from and when was that suddenly a good thing well it's funny I mean even the phrase good taste I mean it's something I try to avoid talking about too much in the book because I was because I do think there's different ways to think about taste one way is sort of the the social construction of taste and so when someone says you have good taste, I mean, it's, it's the question is sort of good taste for for what and for whom. I mean, that you know, one person's one section of society might have a whole you know different uh, approach to that. I mean, I, I really do not think there are universal attributes of good taste that are you know longstanding and do not change throughout history. I mean, if you look at some of the most revered art today, like the Impressionists, I mean, when that work was first coming out, it was considered the absolute height of bad taste and, you know, uh, was not valued well by the market. And, um, you know, so, I mean, the word taste in some ways needs to be uh, unpacked a certain amount there. Um, And we have, you know, sort of our personal taste and social taste and how those sync up. But I'm afraid I've probably gotten off the the track of the original question here. (laughs) I guess one really big anchor in your book is about about music and how you believe that it says so much about an individual. And I think I was blown away by a lot of the parallels about what Republicans like and what Democrats like and and Miley Cyrus. (laughs) Uh, uh, but, but, But talk to me about music and what it says about people. Well, I mean, music is, is, you know, and I'm, you know, as big of a music fan as anyone and I have many, you know, decided tastes and there are things I dislike. And I mean, one thing I tried to do, I mean, and again, music has fascinated, you know, sociologists, for example, Pierre Bourdieu, whose book Distinctions was a a major influence here. He said, you know, nothing classifies people more robustly than, than musical taste. I mean, it's a very easy, it's a very sort of, you know, easy marker of identity, and, and it's something that's sort of universal. But I, so I try, I try to get away a little bit from sociology and to think about how this world of you know instant access to almost the entire world's recorded library of music, how, how the people working in that field, what they're finding out through this huge range of of clicks and you know playlists and uh, decisions that we're making. And so I, I spent time with. With the Echo Nest, who's a company in, in, in Cambridge that works now owned by Spotify, and they've been sort of analyzing you know people's behavior and finding you know you can do things like sync up someone's listening behavior to their Facebook pro- profile and make claims about you know okay it turns out that Republicans are more predisposed to like Pink Floyd. You can drill down and find that they like the later versions of Pink Floyd, whereas Democrats prefer the earlier versions of Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett. So. Again, you know, there's there's all sorts of rich, and it's it's 
correlation here, not always, there's always an exception, right? But you, you can, you know, dig out pretty interesting things. And the, the, the ultimate question is how important you know, musical taste is to a person's sense of identity. I think it fluctuates. I think there are periods in life when it's much more important. And, but there was, I think, you know, what's interesting to me about, about things like Facebook or places where you can advertise what your tastes are. And they've even tried to come up with a dating service that was would compare playlists and would match you with a person based on your music taste, which fine, a lot of people would, would think sounds logical and would make sense. But it turns out that, you know, if you really look at the, the data from online dating, those sorts of surface attributes really aren't as suggestive, at least in terms of a relationship, as, as to what is going to make that relationship work down the road. There are, there are other things that are harder to quantify and harder to you know, just simply lists like, like, you know, values and kind of temperament and shared outlook that, um, you know, music, it turns out is actually a poor predictor of relationship success. So it's, 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 it's a, it's a kind of a mixed, uh, picture there, but the, the question, you know, certainly at certain times of our life, we, we definitely put a huge, uh, import on it. Here's the question then, as the subtitle of your book says, taste in the age of endless choice, has the answer to this question changed, which is, why do we like the things we like? Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's, if it's changed, it's just become a, a more challenging prospect because the sheer amount of information we are now exposed, the, the, the sheer amount of things we, we can theoretically like has increased so much. I mean, when I was growing up, I had a hunger to acquire music that was not heard on the radio. And this, you know, required a huge amount of investment of time and energy on my part. Now I could open Spotify and find the most obscure things if I know where to look, if I'm motivated. It's simply the idea that they're there. You know, and this was something that I had kind of thought might happen is that if this stuff is just made available, people will naturally find it and gravitate to it. And the most obscure artist could be elevated into the, the top pantheon. But in fact, the data on that, looking at billboard charts and radio plays, is that at the very top, the hits have actually become more clustered and more powerful and more robust, and they stay on the charts longer, and songs are played on the radio more often. So the long tail exists as a phenomenon, but in some ways it's actually gotten longer and and skinnier, and there's this real spike uh, at the top. And I think the reason for that is that, you know, it goes back to the, this idea of taste as a form of social learning. We, as humans, we are inherently imitative creatures. We, we, we get our cues from other people about social behavior, about, about picking up tricks of behavior. You know, th we, we learn from other people. So when you suddenly have social media and, and a connected world, you have so many more chances to learn from other people. And that, one of the things you can learn is what sort of music they're listening to. So a hit nowadays just be, get, becomes so saturated in the consciousness to a, a point that it it wasn't. And I, I was talking to an analyst here and he said, you know, the Beatles yesterday was, this was one of the most covered songs of all time, covered by other artists, but it actually was only on the charts about 12 weeks. And songs like Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke or Imagine Dragons, I mean, these are now on the charts for over a year. So, you know, it, even as more stuff has become available, the the big has become bigger. And that, in fact, there may be a relationship there, which is that there's almost a terror of the great unknown. If you open Spotify, like, oh, my God, there's 
10 billion songs to listen to, what do I choose? You just go by default with what you think other people are listening to, and it just makes it easier. And so I think we face, I mean, Michael Pollan with food referred to this as the omnivore's dilemma. People can eat anything, humans can really eat anything. The question is, you know, how do you choose what you're going to eat? And we basically fall back on familiarity because it's just, it's easier and it's safe. What, what didn't kill you yesterday is, you know, safe to eat today. So I think that that approach kind of plays out in in the digital world where we may, instead of just endlessly digging on Google or Spotify to find some obscure thing, we can just immediately have a, have a sense of what other people are doing and follow that behavior. And, and you know, and, you know, when I told you earlier that I was obsessed with this topic, it, it, it bothers me because, you know, as, as someone who works in the media and you talk about film, you talk about music, you talk about books, you critique these things. You're supposed to be some sort of trendsetter or whatever, right? And, and and half the time I'm thinking about, wait, wait, why do I like this as much as I do? Is it because I'm caught in this really weird echo chamber? Yeah, and that gets very difficult to, uh, you know, suss out and that this has been done with, I mean, not even just an echo chamber, but but the way that other types of signals or information may be entering into our calculus of why we think we like something without our even knowing about it. I mean, they've done, I mean, just to take an example, they've done studies uh, of art museums where if you put a painting in the exact center of the gallery in the middle of the wall, X percentage of people will look at it. If you move it to the corner, that number drops. So very same painting, it gets fewer views. Does that mean fewer people actually liked it or fewer people were just sort of trained through habit, you know, all oh, the corners were the less, not where the most, not where the best art goes. Uh, you know, you see this in blind taste tests of wine where the, the price of wine throws off people's impression of what they think about it. So, I mean, you know, we could go on and on with this where, uh, you know, it, it becomes, it does become very difficult to make an honest assessment of something, which I think is what the role of the, the critic is really about, but again, and, and you and I are complicit in this, you know, there's, I can't tell you how many books I've read lately that were, you know, I, I'd heard about, there was an enormous buzz about them. They had gotten huge advances and, and I sort of read it and I was like, well, you know, I was, I was a bit disappointed. You know, it, here's the question, you know, was I disappointed because the expectations had been built up so high? Uh, you know, these, these are the kinds of dynamics that are out there that are hard to disentangle, I think. You don't just rate movies and books and plays, you rate your Uber driver. Um, <laughs> I, you rate a Tinder date, you know, you rate, you rate everything. And that's really interesting because in this world, we seem to now apply, you know, a star rating or a one to 10 rating on almost everything. Yeah, that's a great point. And I should also add, though, that those dynamics that happen are, are quite different and distinct for a number of reasons. I mean, the the whole Uber driver rating system is influenced by the fact that they can also rate you. So that tends to lead to a much higher uh, kind of positivity bias for Uber rater, ratings than, say, a book uh, like myself, uh, like my book on Amazon, people can rate, give my book two stars and I can't give them, I can't well, give them two stars. Well, you can't be like, well, as a reader, I think you weren't up to par. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're a one-star reader. You know, you, there's not, so there's not that reciprocity. So I think that that's just one way in which these, you know, each of these services almost has their own 
you know, kind of uh, dynamic going on there. And it, it's, it's very, very subject to flux. This is one thing they saw on, have, have seen on Netflix, which is, uh, you know, as films have shifted from DVD to streaming on demand, the, the star ratings have changed a little bit. Um, as uh, the algorithms got better and were better at recommending running movies for people, the stars for all movies increased. I mean, the, 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 these, you know, we, we put a lot of stock in these stars, I think, but they, as kind of objective, you know, uh, arbiters of some sort of truth. But in fact, there's a lot of uh, subtle manipulation going on behind the scenes. Not not by the not not by those companies, but by just by by people making the ratings. With all of that in mind, with 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 the way social media influences our taste, with the way this so-called echo chamber of of social pressures influences our taste. Because it's at a state, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's at a state like it's never been before. Because in the past, you would get, you know, you would get the New York Times reviewing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And you would go to these so-called purveyors of taste to find out what was good and what was bad. But now everyone is a purveyor of taste. Now, with that in mind, what then does my taste say about me or your taste say about you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we're all omnivores now is sort of the thing, you know, that this is the idea where, you know, those old highbrow, lowbrow distinctions have broken down to a great extent. And, you know, it's almost now less about having some, how to describe this, some, you know, exhaustive knowledge of one discipline, say opera or something and having, you know, the highest taste in opera, but it's really knowing a lot about a range of things or, or, or being expected to know about a lot of things and so you know you need to be able to know which which album by the smiths was the best and you also need to know which uh current nashville artist is the best and yet which restaurant is the best in our city so it, it, it's an enormous amount of pressure and, and because we're making so many of the decisions there's probably we're probably simply following what other people are saying because we actually don't have the time to really sit down and make those uh decisions this is where again one way, one way we respond to the torrent of information is to simply, you know, kind of spend less time actually thinking about it and rely more on these ratings and things that are out there to make quick, to help us make quick decisions, which which often work, but are often, you know, can often be flawed. And um, so again, yeah, it, it's a very complicated world, and, and these, as things have gotten democratized, it's put more pressure in a way, you know, to to actually figure it out. So yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I have, actually have an answer for you about, about what our taste says about us. What then does it say about the outliers? What, what does it say about the five people who thought Batman v Superman was a good film? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's almost, uh, as someone at uh, Pandora, the online music streaming service put it to me, you know, they were saying we can, you know, if we, if we play song X, we can predict through previous plays of song X, you know, how many people are going to like song Y that we then play next. What becomes harder is to figure out that smaller percentage of people who, who do dislike it, who, who are exactly the outliers. And maybe this is where the most interesting things begin to happen. I mean, because again, going back to something like the impressionists, you know, society at large said this was not good art, but it was the, the small amount of people that were out there making this contrarian argument that no this actually is really interesting art you just have to sort of get your head around it and think about it um so you know and this goes 
this has been seen time and again. And I think one thing that's hugely important here and that many of us might not think about all the time is that we, as part of a way of filtering the huge amount of information just in the world, I'm not talking about the digital world, but we, we tend to, to categorize. This is an important cognitive strategy that, uh, and it's even been referred to as the predictive brain, the idea that we're walking down the street, rather than taking everything in and processing information, we already have a model in our head of what is out there. And then the brain is sort of ticking off as we go, okay, that matches up with what I thought that matches up. And, and once in a while, there'll be something that doesn't. But um, the point here is that, you know, categorization, we quickly lump things into categories to help us understand them. And the more we like something, the more categories we create for it, the more we can fit it into an existing category, the more we actually like that thing. So just to come around here, when a film like The Big Lebowski, I don't know if this is something you great film. All right, okay, yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure about the, the global reach of this, this film. But So when that came out, though, it had a pretty poor box office performance, and it also had a mixed critical reception. And I think, you know, this is a very... This is a film that was very unusual, even for the Coen Brothers standard, and it, it it didn't really fit comfortably into a it sort of a straddling genres and was creating, in a sense, new genres. So it just it was a slow burn. It took people a while to figure out what it was they liked about it, or if they liked it, and why why should people should pay attention to it. So, and this is something that you know we really need to think in this age of instant opinion and instant access to everything is that a lot of the things you know, that seem so great uh, at the moment may not hold up and the things that seem to turn us off right away may actually be the things that are really treasured down the road. So I, I just always counsel against trusting your gut all the time when it comes to taste um, you know, that you know, often we just have to spend time with things and try to figure out to, to not get wrapped up in this categorical uh, thinking. Okay, so which brings me now to the to, to my last question to you, which is, it's the silver bullet, it's the magic formula that everyone's trying to crack: Google, Netflix, Amazon, Apple Music, Spotify, all of them are trying to get into your brain by whatever means, whether it's human curation, algorithms, artificial intelligence, to figure out what you like. Because if they can figure out what you like, they can make a fortune off of you. And my question is, how do you gauge their success so far? And how are they coming along? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, all of the, you know, a lot of these companies, the product they're selling is really... Uh, engagement and so a company like Netflix, you know, they I use the analogy of the uh, g gaming machines in casinos. I mean, there's a lot of clever math that goes into those machines to as you're playing, you know, even as you're losing, you can have the sensation that you're slightly winning through <laughs> through kind of a, a complicated set of dynamics here, but. The idea is to keep you hungry, to kind of keep triggering that that dopamine hit that want that that wants you wanting more. And you know, Netflix, you know, really, you know, does this quite well. And, and of course, in some ways, television itself has even reshaped itself to be more amenable to this age of binge watching, where you have these, you know, the sort of dramatic arc has been has been manipulated. And so, the current show you're watching, let's say it's Bloodline on Netflix, it ends and there's already a little box in the corner saying your next show will start in five, four, three. And, I mean, creating this kind of, not only does it make it easy, I mean, you don't even have to change a disc or anything that you used to have to do. It, it sort of 
you know, heightens your sense of, of awareness and novelty. Like, oh, there's something new starting. So you know, none of these companies would, would be creating anything new. They're just, they're, they're kind of tapping into some, you know, what I really think are, are ancient human processes that, that shape our liking, which would be, you know, again, this dynamic between novelty and familiarity or liking what other people like up, up to a certain point. Um, I just saw a great study that was uh, having people look at Instagram photos and they were attached to an fMRI machine. And the more likes that an Instagram photo had, the greater uh, the brain activity was in the regions associated with uh, sort of reward. And again, that kind of dopamine. So we even, you know, seem to get a certain, our, our brain seems cued to notice what other people seem to have liked. I mean, again, I think going back to the social learning process, I mean, it seems important to us. We should pay attention. I mean, we, we may eventually decide we don't like it, but it's almost as if there's an early warning system like, hey, this is something I should pay attention to. So, you know, a lot of companies are just playing into real sort of fundamental dynamics like that. It's an age-old way of making money. What's changed, I think, is just the, the speed and the, and the frequency of the feedback loops where – uh, again, you know, you can just use Netflix as an example. I mean, we're all sort of living in a kind of re real-time focus group. I mean, any online presenter of information or or, uh, or, or or seller of merchandise is constantly running these these A/B tests. You know, to, to, does presenting the information in this way seem to get a higher click-through rate than presenting the information in this way? And and so we're sort of at the same time, we're being shaped by what they're trying to present to us. We're helping shape them by our, our actual uh, behavior. So it's just kind of made, it's shortened the loops here, I think, uh, a lot and made taste sort of a more uh, convulsive uh, enterprise. And you know, we just have much clearer sense of what other people are doing and what how our own actions actually influence what happens out in the world. That was Tom Vanderbilt. You can find his book, You May Also Like, Taste in the Age of Endless Choice at All Good Bookstores. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.